One of the ways that we bring glory to Jesus Christ is by serving one another. Uh, Peter writes in his first epistle uh, that we're to serve one another in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for the many ways that so many of our members serve one another. Uh, And you do this week in and week out all throughout the year. And yet sometimes there are circumstances that uh, give us occasion to go beyond the regular call of duty. And, And that was certainly the case last Sunday as we had a carpet all throughout the sanctuary, including the platform, the lobby, the nursery area had to be done. And there was a lot of equipment and furniture that needed to be moved. And uh, we asked if it was possible for you to stay after the service. And uh, the vast majority of you did. We got it done like in 15 minutes. And uh, that was incredible considering how much had to be moved out of the way. And uh, many of you came back later in that week to help with the setup and breakdown of the Harvest Fellowship we had on Wednesday or to move furniture and equipment back in place. And so we just want to say thank you. We know that uh, many hands do make lighter work, and uh, we greatly appreciate that. We, we truly thank you for serving our Lord and His church. And incidentally, today's passage in 1 Timothy begins on a note of thanks. Uh, Midway through chapter 1, Paul thanks God for giving him the strength to serve. So I invite you to turn there, 1 Timothy chapter 1, on page 932 in your pew Bible. Paul's expression of gratitude that starts in verse 12 uh, flows into this broader testimony that ends in verse 17. This is one of the most encouraging texts in the New Testament. I hope that we'll pay careful attention to this text this morning because while it provides encouragement for all Christians, it is geared especially for those who might feel haunted by your failures, who might be weighed down by your past or present sins. Or in some cases, you might even feel that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. This passage is especially for you. And so I trust that whatever else is going on in your mind or in your life today, that you would rivet your attention to this precious portion of God's Word. 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 17. Paul says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Holy Spirit of God, I pray 
that you would cause us to think much about this portion of Scripture today. Oh, how we need the encouragement and the comfort, even the conviction that can only come from you. So please, God, stir our hearts today. We trust you to give each person here precisely what we need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you see that moon last night? I was walking around late last evening, and uh, I had a hard time taking my eyes off it. Some neighbors probably thought I was drunk as I wandered into their yard here and there because I was looking at the moon instead of looking forward to where I was going. But it was the full hunter's moon, and it actually peaked last evening. And I was amazed at just how bright it shone in the night sky. It was pretty incredible. Now, most of us know, I trust all of us know, that, you know, the moon uh, doesn't give off its own light. It's a reflection of the sun's light, right? And in the same way, that's how Paul's testimony operates here. It is, it is a reflection of the sun's light, capital S-O-N, apostrophe S, the Son of God. And it shines all the more brightly in this context because it's shining amid false doctrine that was going on in Ephesus. And this had created a cloud over the Spirit's work there. And so Paul has already told Timothy to confront these false teachers who are basing their teachings on human speculation rather than on God's revelation. Paul tells Timothy that you must guard the truth if the church is to be what it is called to be. But in the midst of of Paul telling Timothy to guard the gospel, Right here in the middle of the passage, Paul gets excited about the gospel, about the true gospel that comes from the true God, and he just kind of like goes off from on this doxological note, just praising God for his work in his own life. And that's what this text is about. Uh, God's grace had radically changed Paul's life. It had brought him into a right relationship with God. So the gospel for Paul was not just um, a, a, a theological concept. It was not simply the transmission of information from his mind to the minds of his hearer. The gospel had changed the very core of who Paul was as a person. It changed the very trajectory of his life. It changed his eternal destiny. It changed his mission in life, his reason for living. And so Paul cannot just shut up when it comes to the gospel. He cannot talk about it in a cool, callous, intellectual, ethereal, academic kind of way. This goes to the very heart of who Paul had become by the grace of God. And Paul knew, best of all, that what God did for him, he would do for anyone who would believe in Christ for eternal life. And that's what this particular text is about. And this is a key reminder for Christians. Most of us here in this room today would claim to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things I love about Webster Bible Church is our commitment to proclaiming the true gospel and not tampering with Scripture. We don't want to be given to human speculation. We want to make sure that our church is founded solidly on the revealed Word of God. But brothers and sisters, did you know that it is possible to be spot on doctrinally and yet dried up spiritually? In fact, we find that this is exactly what ended up happening 
in the church at Ephesus. In this letter, Paul is dealing with false doctrine, and, and apparently that got dealt with, that got resolved. And yet decades later, after Paul's letter to Timothy, Jesus Christ delivers a message to this same church through the pen of the Apostle John. And Jesus Christ commends them for their zero tolerance for false doctrine. But he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. They weren't loving God the way they were supposed to. They weren't loving one another the way Christ had called them to. And Jesus said to them in that moment, Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Revelation 2.5. So I think a fair question to ask ourselves as we approach this text in particular is, how does a church remain loyal to God's word without letting our love diminish? That's a fair question, isn't it? You might want to wake up some of you to answer that. How does a church remain loyal to God's word without letting our love diminish? The answer is given right here in this text. The answer is celebrate the gospel. Celebrate the gospel. That's exactly what Paul does here in verses 12 to 17. Paul's own personal testimony, his own personal example, provides the key to being doctrinally healthy and spiritually happy. Doctrinally healthy and spiritually happy. As we guard the gospel, let us celebrate the gospel. That, I believe, is the driving point of today's passage. That even as we guard the gospel, that's the context here in 1 Timothy. Let us celebrate the gospel. That's the very heart of Paul's testimony. In fact, if you look at the sequence of Paul's testimony in verses 12 to 17, you'll see that it can be summed up in four words, which I've used as my outline. Gratitude, grace, gospel, glory. Gratitude, grace, gospel, glory glory. I want us to consider each of these elements in his testimony briefly. First of all, gratitude. Paul says at the start of verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you remember how Paul opened this letter to Timothy? He, he begins with a triple prayer wish. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul knows that Timothy is in a tough situation, and Paul here is not speaking out of school. He knows how well fortified a believer needs to be if he or she is to remain faithful in their service to the Lord. Remember what Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do what? Nothing. You can't do anything apart from me. Anything eternally significant, that is. I mean, anyone can produce wood, hay, and stubble, but only those who truly serve in the strength that God supplies will accomplish great things for God that bear eternal value. That's why Paul wrote in another letter, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 I want to ask my fellow believers this morning, 
Do you thank the Lord who has given you strength? Strength to live. Strength to love. Strength to serve. Don't miss the significance of the title and name Paul uses here. He is Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is the one who gives us strength. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew title Messiah, which means anointed one. Jesus is the one who has been anointed by God to save sinners and to strengthen them to serve God. The name Jesus literally means the Lord saves. So he is the anointed one of God who has come to save and redeem sinners like you and me. And he is Christ the Lord. He is our master. He is our God. I thought of even this morning, my gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread throughout the earth abroad the honors of thy name. In the fullness of this name, this title that's given here, Christ Jesus our Lord, I think Paul might use the fullness of the title because even as he's saying it, he's reflecting on his own conversion experience. Because prior to his conversion, Paul had denied Jesus' deity. He had denied Jesus' lordship. He did not believe in Jesus' power to save. And yet this is the very one who saved Paul. This is the very one who strengthened Paul to serve God. Paul says, he judged me faithful. He judged me faithful. It's not like at the moment of Paul's conversion, Jesus could see the real Paul in there and said, you know what, I see something inherently good about Paul, therefore I'm going to pick him. It's not like Jesus looked at Paul's track record and said, look, what a great guy this has been. This is the kind of guy I want serving me. That's not the case at all. Paul's suitability for ministry and Paul's faithfulness in ministry was not owing to himself in any way. It had everything to do with the inner strength that God had promised and provided for him, apart from any goodness in Saul. Paul, who was formerly called Saul. And Paul says so explicitly in 1 Corinthians 7.25, where he refers to himself as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I want you to look at those two phrases together. 1 Timothy 1.12, because he judged me faithful. In 1 Corinthians 7.25, one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. You take those two phrases together, Those two clauses communicate something very important about Paul. Extremely important. Something that is true for every servant of Christ. He was called to belong to and serve Christ not because of anything inherently good or trustworthy in himself. God gives us the answer in Acts 9 where the Lord said to Ananias, Go to Paul for he is my chosen instrument. He is a chosen instrument of mine. God in his mercy chose Paul and decided that he would make Paul worthy of trust and therefore be faithful. And God would give him the strength and the salvation that was necessary to do that. How did God demonstrate this? Paul tells us at the end of verse 12. By appointing me to his service. The word service there is 
diakonia, from which we get our word deacon. And there are many expressions of Christian service. Paul's was to be an apostle. Matt Smethers writes, quote, If you put your trust in Christ, you are already a deacon in a broad sense, end quote. Which is to say that you are a servant. You are a chosen instrument of the Lord who has mercifully called you into his service. As I think about the reality of God's mercy and how that relates to my ministry and your ministry as a servant of the living God, my mind goes to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.1 where he says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. I want you to leave that verse on the screen for a moment. I want you to look at it carefully. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Brothers and sisters, at times, we get tired of serving. And we lose heart in ministry. I've been there. Because we forget that our ministry is a mercy. We forget our ministry is a mercy. We, we start thinking of ministry, of serving the Lord, of the things that we got, got on our plate or something that we have to do instead of something that we get to do. A gift that has been given us by God, a gift that we don't deserve. When our service for the Lord becomes more of a duty than a delight, and it is a duty to serve God, but when it becomes a duty more than a delight, that is a sure sign that we have ceased to celebrate the gospel. And we have attempted to serve the Lord in our own strength. And yet what does Scripture say? In Nehemiah 8.10 it says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Right? The joy of the Lord is your strength. So the key to recovering your joy, if, if you've lost heart in ministry and you're getting tired of serving the Lord and people are getting on your nerves, the, the key to recovering that is not to beat up yourself because you've had a poor attitude. The key to resolving that is to get your eyes back on Christ and to think about the amazing things that He has done for you through the gospel. Christian believers are those who walk in the footsteps of the ultimate deacon, the ultimate servant, the suffering servant who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for you, as a ransom for me. Believer, you have been ransomed by God to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you think you or I deserve that because of any inherent goodness in us? Isn't that an amazing privilege that God would not only be willing to, but would delight to use the likes of us to accomplish His eternal redemptive purposes? No wonder Paul exclaimed, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Not just my Lord, He is our Lord. Oh, may we give thanks to Him as well and celebrate the gospel. You say, how do we do that? Well, Paul's gratitude springs from God's grace. And that's what Paul emphasizes in verses 13 to 14. He highlights God's grace as he emphasizes what he was 
and what he received. Look at those verses, verses 13 and 14. Look at how Paul emphasizes what he was and then what he received. First of all, what he was. First part of verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Sometimes it's easy to just kind of skate over those verses, but we don't want to go too quickly over them. Paul is not exaggerating his pre-conversion state. Luke the historian tells us at the beginning of Acts 9 that Paul, who was formerly called Saul, was literally breathing in threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. Threats and murder had become the very air that Paul breathed like a snorting war horse ready for battle. Years later, when Paul shared his testimony before King Agrippa in Acts 26, Paul freely confessed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to even make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. How many of you have done that? Blaspheme God. Thought of all the different ways that you can oppose God. And not just blaspheme God yourself, but try to get everybody else around you to blaspheme Him as well, including those who had already professed themselves to be disciples. And trying to coerce them to blaspheme God by persecuting them, not only in your own hometown, but even going to foreign cities, chasing them down, and putting pressure on them, persecuting them, so that they too will blaspheme the God that you have blasphemed. It's hard to imagine someone who could be more zealous in directly opposing Jesus Christ. And yet Paul says, I was an insolent opponent. I was a violent aggressor. The word there for insolent opponent, it's one word in the Greek, is hubristes, from which we get our word hubris. It depicts a person who is insolent and arrogant and finds pleasure in insulting and humiliating other people. Paul's blasphemous words and his violent acts, like lava from an erupting volcano, spewed forth from his hostile, hate-filled heart. That's the man he was. But look at what he received. Second half of verse 13. But I received mercy. That's the kind of man he was. But he says, I received mercy. Will you think on that for a moment with me? Humanly speaking, there was no hope for someone as malicious as Paul, who so virently, violently opposed Jesus Christ in all who followed him. In fact, even after Paul's conversion, there were those who were afraid to, to have anything to do with him because of his past. 
It took a while to convince people that this man had truly changed. And yet this blasphemer, this persecutor, this insolent opponent, this violent aggressor against God and His people received mercy. Why? There's a couple of reasons stated in Paul's testimony. And the first one is, Paul says, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry said, quote, unbelief is at the bottom of what sinners do ignorantly. They do not believe God's threatenings, otherwise they could not do as they do. End quote. The Bible says that Unbelief that the God of this world, small g, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Oh, they may understand words on a page. They may understand the Christian argument. They may be able to try to raise up rationalistic arguments, philosophical arguments against the Christian faith. They might understand it intellectually in that sense, but God is saying they don't get it. Because they're trying to get it at this level, but it's never reached this level. And Paul, in his unregenerate state, did what every single sinner does prior to their conversion. Act ignorantly in unbelief. What did Jesus pray from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, None of the rulers of this age knew God's wisdom, for if they did, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In Titus 3, the passage that was read moments ago, Paul tells his fellow believers, those who have come to faith in Christ, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Because we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and misled. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. Likewise in Ephesians 2, Paul says that we were dead Dead in our trespasses and sins. We were gratifying the cravings of our flesh. We were following the God of this world, the devil. And we were like everybody else in the world, by nature, children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did He do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that's the grace by which Paul was saved. And that is the grace that Paul celebrates here in verse 14. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner... Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. If you think God can never save the likes of you, look at Paul. Paul says, one of the reasons God saved me so that I would stand out as a trophy of His mercy, His grace, for the very worst of sinners. 
An artist once submitted a painting of Niagara Falls to an exhibition, but he forgot to untitle his portrait. So the gallery just sort of randomly dubbed it More to Follow. That's a pretty cool title, isn't it? Niagara Falls, More to Follow. More than 1.5 million gallons of water pour over Niagara every second. And I think that natural phenomenon illustrates the floods of God's grace toward undeserving sinners. There's always more to follow. Or as James puts it in his epistle, he gives more grace. John writes in his gospel, we have received grace upon grace. Psalm 65 says that when the river overflows, crops abound. And likewise, when God's grace floods a heart, faith and love spring up. You see now why Paul said in verse 5 that the goal of our charge, the goal of our instruction is love that issues forth from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith because Paul knew what it meant to have a hateful, unbelieving heart and God changed that heart. God took out his heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh, a heart that was pure, a conscience that was clear, and a faith that was real to serve the living God. And God is the one who made the difference. Moments ago we sang, your enemy you made your friend. No one would be able to sing that more genuinely and joyfully than the Apostle Paul, for that is exactly what had happened in his life. This faith and love, Paul says, are in Christ Jesus. Why are they in Christ Jesus? Paul tells us in verse 15. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's where he moves from grace to gospel. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I want you to notice how Paul introduces this good news. That's what the word gospel means, literally good news. It is not like the myths and speculations of the false teachers that Paul addressed earlier in his letter, verse 4 specifically. This good news is not like that because this good news is true. It's not false. It's not based on human speculation. It's based on God's revelation. God's revelation to us. And therefore, because it comes from God, it is trustworthy and it deserves full acceptance. Well, what is this saying that deserves full acceptance? It appears smack in the middle of Paul's testimony, smack in the middle of verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Commentators believe that this might have been an early slogan. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It might have been a bumper sticker on chariots or maybe stuck it on the back of your horse. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a lot better bumper sticker than got Jesus This provides clarity. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Okay, question. I've said it a few times now. Whom did Christ Jesus come into the world to save? Sinners. Sinners. As long as you fall under that general description, 
you qualify to be saved. God's salvation is for you. We've all sinned, but we don't all sin sin in the same way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but not every sinner's way is the same way that every other sinner takes. We all chart our own path away from God, left to our own devices. But regardless of where you are and how you got there, this is good news for you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus himself testified, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came. He lived among sinners. He mixed with sinners. He ate with sinners. He died with sinners. He made his grave with the wicked. He went to paradise with a thief. And now in heaven, he rejoices with redeemed sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Bible tells us explicitly, following the most famous verse in all of Scripture, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but will have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, not to condemn them. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to help sinners save themselves, either in whole or in part. Like Jesus does His part, now you do your part. Friends, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin for which Christ came to save us. And Christ did not come to leave us content in our sin. To just leave us there. Being apart from God without hope in this world. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. To save us from the eternal punishment of our sins. To save us from the pollution of our sin that corrupted us, giving us a pure heart and a good conscience. And He came to save us from the power of sin so that we might walk in the light as He is in the light. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And just so that we don't forget who our Savior is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We've already looked at His name and His title in this message. But let us recount that before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, He pre-existed eternally as the second person of the Trinity. But He humbled Himself 
and took on flesh and came into the world. Yes, the Father sent His Son, but Scripture also makes it clear that the Son came voluntarily out of great love for His Father and out of great love for us. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That was His mission. And as the only one who was truly God and truly man, He is able to save sinners. He's able to sympathize with us in our state as a man. And yet He is able to save us from that state because He is God. Furthermore, Paul emphasizes that Christ Jesus came into the world to save not just sinners in general, but sinners personally. Paul says he came to save me. Christ Jesus came to save me, the foremost sinner. Notice Paul doesn't say, I was the foremost sinner. He says, I am the foremost sinner. The comments on this particular verse by the late evangelist and Bible teacher John Stott are worth quoting at length here. Listen to what Stott says. Quote, Common sense tells us not to take Paul's statement as a precise scientific fact. For he had not investigated the sinful and criminal records of all the inhabitants of the world, carefully compared himself with them, and concluded that he was worst of all. The truth is that when we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. We may begin like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18 who said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. But we end like the tax collector who beat his breast and said literally, God have mercy on me, the sinner. The Pharisee indulged in odious comparisons. But as far as the tax collector was concerned, there were no other sinners with whom to compare himself. He was the one and only. End quote. I wonder if you've ever seen yourself that way. Or do you try to make yourself good by comparing yourself to others? That's an empty pursuit that never winds up in a joyful place. Only a heart that is flooded with the grace of God can say, I am the foremost sinner and really mean it. And that's why this is such good news. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the very worst of them. One of God's purposes in saving Paul was to press home this very point. Look at verse 16 again. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That is to say that if God saved Paul, God will save anybody. No human being on planet earth is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. I grew up in a Christian home by a father who led me to Jesus Christ at an early age. But there was a time I didn't know my dad 
for the man that he was prior to his conversion. He was a military man, a Marine, who didn't think he needed anybody to save him. My dad smoked cigarettes back at the time, and, and he told me that in that stage, as his own brothers would try to witness to him, he would literally blow smoke in their face and say, I'm not interested, I don't want to hear it. But after hearing the gospel multiple times, there was a time when my dad was sitting in the living room and his sister-in-law in the next room was listening to a gospel message by Billy Graham. And my dad, eavesdropping on that message as it were, got convicted of his sin and became convinced of the truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. At this very moment, about a thousand miles from here, in a small church in Mississippi, my 86-year-old father is strumming his guitar and singing on the platform with the pastor's wife, that famous hymn, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord, Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Sin and despair like the sea waves roll, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yet grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You who are longing to see God's face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. That grace is freely bestowed, as the hymn writer says, on all who believe. And that's what Paul iterates in verse 16. It's not enough to admit that you're a sinner. You must also receive by faith Christ as your Savior. It's been said that the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton, said on his deathbed, I'm old, I'm about to die, but two things I know, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Those are the two things we need to know. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and Paul says in verse 16 that we must believe in Him for eternal life. If you've never done that, I, I ask you this morning, will you this moment His grace receive? Everyone who truly receives the grace of God joyfully ascribes glory to God. And, and that's what Paul does in verse 17. He moves from gratitude to grace to gospel to glory. Verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. On this closing note of praise, Paul uses transcendent language to honor the God who has actually come to us in a very personal, imminent way, in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.17 forms the basis of another hymn, a well-known hymn by Walter Charles Smith. We've sung it here many times. Immortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, 
most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. I want us to consider briefly each of the divine traits that Paul delineates in this verse. He calls him, first of all, the king of the ages. And this is a reminder to us that God sovereignly governs all the ages before creation, after creation, the final age, and right on into and throughout eternity, the ages to come. Ephesians 2 says that he will, in the ages to come, continue to show his kindness toward us in Christ. He is the king of the ages. And what encouragement this ought to give us in this crazy, topsy-turvy world. He is the king of the ages. He is immortal. Isaiah wrote, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. God is not subject to deterioration or to destruction. God is not subject to decay and death. He's beyond all that. He is immortal. He's invisible. John concludes the prologue of his gospel by saying, No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's right hand, he has revealed him. Likewise, Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews says that he is the exact representation of his being. The only reason we see God is because we will see Christ face to face. Because he took on human flesh. He is the God-man. He's the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, monotheo. Monotheo, the only God. I am the Lord and there is no other, says the Almighty God through his prophet Isaiah. To the only God and to him alone, Paul says, be honor and glory forever and ever. I want you to notice that Paul began his testimony by saying, I thank God. And now he ends his testimony by saying, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. I thought as I read Paul's testimony how easy it is for us, even in our own testimonies, you know, to desire to bring glory to God, but we actually end up talking not about what God has done for us, but what we've done for God. And our, they cease to be testimonies and they end up being bragamonies. But Paul begins and ends with God, and at the very heart of his testimony is Christ. The central statement in Paul's testimony is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's why God deserves all the glory forever and ever. And Paul punctuates this concluding statement of his testimony with the word, Amen. And that's not an afterthought. Paul doesn't add it because, well, that's just kind of like what you do at the end of a prayer or a really profound statement. It is a word of agreement and affirmation. It means truly or so be it. The word amen invites a personal invitation. And that's why every time the word of God is read and I hear someone say amen, or every time a prayer is prayed and someone closes it with amen, if they have prayed what is true and biblical, 
by God's grace, I will always respond with an affirming amen. I agree with that. That is true. And I'm putting my own personal stamp of belief. I am aligning myself with that statement because it is based on God's holy revelation. And that's why I encourage you, when people are praying publicly or scripture is read publicly and you hear that word, amen. If you can resound from the heart and say, I fully believe that by the grace of God, you should say aloud, amen. Affirm that. Agree with it. Show your solidarity in that truth. I wonder if you can say what Paul did from your own heart. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And to that God alone belongs glory forever and ever. In order for that to be true in your life, you must first trust Jesus as your Savior and King. And you must also testify of your faith even as Paul did. Have you obeyed the Lord in this matter? Jesus said, believe and be baptized. Baptism is going public with your faith. Trust and testify. That is God's will for you. C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. End quote. Let me read that again and see if you can relate. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but actually completes the enjoyment. We know what this feels like when we read a good book or watch a good movie or see the Patriots beat the Bills. We want to, we enjoy, we enjoy it, we're celebrating, but what completes the celebration is when we tell others about it, when we express it. We cannot help but celebrate what we truly enjoy. And praise is the expression and the consummation of that joy. You talk with enthusiasm, with enthusiasm about that cool song you heard, about that movie you watched, about the book you read, about your child, how they did in school, the accomplishments of your spouse or another loved one. How spontaneously and quickly and enthusiastically do you praise the God of all grace? How quick are you to genuinely and joyfully celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ? When working with baptismal candidates, we stress the importance of their testimonies. In fact, we actually have a testimony worksheet that helps them to summarize the gospel and how to depict it in a biblical way so that God is the one who is being praised and his work is evident in their lives. Many of you have, you have seen so many testimonies and every single one just fills you with joy. Not it's because how great this baptismal candidate is, but because how awesome and great God is who has saved them. Every testimony is unique and in one sense, every story is the same. It's the story about God's grace redeeming sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you've never taken that step, I urge you, to trust Christ, and then testify of your faith through baptism. And baptism isn't the end of your profession. It's the beginning of your profession. It ought to kick off a, a lifetime of witnessing for Jesus Christ.
And so, to help you, maybe you said, you know what, I've never really put together a personal testimony like Paul did in such a succinct way where I can celebrate and express to others God's work of grace in my life. Well, I printed off several copies of our testimony worksheet, and they're available at the Welcome Center. If that would help you to kind of go through and think biblically and practically about how you could actually write out your testimony and just kind of really think through it, go over it several times, so that any given moment in any given conversation, you can share with others what Christ Jesus has done for you. Pick up a paper, and I personally would be happy to work with you through that. What an encouragement this text is for unbelievers. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And for believers, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. One pastor writes, and I'll close with this, individual believers, local churches, and the church of Jesus Christ across the globe will continue to go through difficult times. However, the head of the church, Christ, our God, Savior, and King, will ever be on His throne. Though opposition and challenges may come, God is the King of the ages, and He will lead, guide, protect, purify, sanctify, and preserve His church. End quote. And that's why we say, to Him be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this exhilarating testimony from Paul, which in essence is the reality of every man, woman, boy, and girl who has genuinely trusted in You for the salvation of of their souls. God, we thank you for sending your Son into this world to save sinners like us, even the very worst. Lord Jesus, we thank, we thank you that you were not forced into this, but you said, I have come to do your will, O God. You were submissive to the Father's will and you voluntarily laid down your life. You said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to raise it up. This charge I have received from my Father. And so today, Lord Jesus, we celebrate you. We celebrate you who loved us and gave yourself for us. We praise your beautiful name. We ask you to forgive us for serving in a self-centered spirit, begrudging the gracious work that you have given us to do. Lord, I've been there more times than I care to admit. I know my brothers and sisters have been there. Life is hard. Life gets busy. But in the midst of all of it, you are good you are gracious. You are merciful. And you succeeded in your mission to save sinners. We rejoice in that. And we bless you, our great God and Savior. We thank you and we praise you. We want to live for you. Help us do that by your Holy Spirit. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.